This is Why We Write, a podcast of Leslie University. Every episode, we bring you conversations with authors from the Leslie community to talk about books, writing, and the writing life. We're wrapping up our second season of the podcast with a conversation about Common Thought Magazine, our literary magazine which celebrated its 30th anniversary this school year. In this episode, we talk about the old days of magazine production and why literary magazines are still an important part of the creative life at any university. Hi, I'm Chris Clark. I am the administrative coordinator uh, of the MFA program in creative writing here at Leslie, and I teach in the undergrad creative writing program, and I'm here with uh, Annie Pluto. And hi, I'm Annie Pluto, and I am professor of literature and theater at Leslie University. And, you know, we're here today to talk a little bit about um, literary magazines and specifically uh, Common Thought, a literary magazine close to your heart and, and my heart celebrating um, can I do math? It's 30. I want to say 20. I always want to say 20, but it's... I actually think it's 31, but 31. I can't find the paper, so... <laughs> and I a, actually like that, too, so... Yeah. It is a... Uh, not bone of contention, That's uh, but, but it's interesting to think back to what it must have been like um, in 1988, 89, whenever you were putting it out, and... Um, to just have the hard copies, to not not even have the option yet of of scanning something in and, and archiving it, so that your future self could could prove it's thirty one years instead of if, instead of thirty. But I wanted to start by talking a little bit about um, where you were coming from prior to getting involved in the literary magazine here on campus. So, as a poet yourself, uh, what were your experiences with reading and or submitting to literary magazines? prior to launching what would become Common Thought? Well, I went to graduate school at SUNY Buffalo, and my professor was uh, Bob Creeley and um, John Logan and Irving Feldman. So there were small magazines that I submitted to, and I had many contacts in the Buffalo area. And, of course, this is all you know print journals. This is all U.S. mail, snail mail mm-hmm. submissions. And then when I, I came to Boston in 1983, and I really was missing a literary community. So I looked to find one, and you know, I would go to readings, and I found this magazine called Oak Square. Mm. And I wrote to them, and I sent them work, and they published my poems, and then I met Philip Borenstein, the editor, and we became friends. At the same time, there was this movement of zines in the area, mm-hmm. and there was a person named Michael McGinnis who was putting out something called Nightmares of Reason. And then there was a group that wanted to become the Small Press Alliance of Boston, the SPA. So I got involved with those people. And some of them were, they were an amusing group. But the the best thing that came out of it is that Michael, Philip, and I stayed friends. So this is like 1985. It's a long time. And then uh, Philip had asked me to be one of the editors at Oak Square. Mm-hmm. So I was teaching part-time at UMass Lowell, and then I was full-time at a junior college downtown. It was Bay State now. I think it's a college. Yeah. But then I came to Leslie, and there was no literary magazine. Yeah. that's It's surprising to me. Um, what was the – were there – writers? Was there a creative writing? Yeah, there was a master's program that, that was in creative writing. And I know several people who did it, but undergrad, undergraduate, no. Mm. And in fact, the humanities department was very small. And there were only three majors at Leslie. Then there was teaching, 
human services and management. Interesting. And the it was the woman's college. You know, it was yeah. a very small woman's college. There were there was a graduate school that right. was the bigger piece. And there was a wonderful Office of Student Affairs, and I spoke with someone who worked there, and she got grant money, and we did a literary magazine. So it is in the library, the original copy. It's mm. mimeographed. <laughs> I love it, that smell. And it was called a Woman Thought magazine mm-hmm. because it was the, it was a woman's uh, grant. I forgot right. where the grant money came. So it stayed woman thought for a few years, and then we changed it to common thought. But the first two journals were mimeographed. There, I want to back up to something mm-hmm. else that we had a. Um, he was the chair of uh, liberal arts. His name was Steve Trainer, mm. and he said to me, "You got to create a class mm. because you, this should be part of your workload." So yeah. I did, and that's the course that you're teaching now, and that I taught for I don't know twenty years. So yeah. it was. Um, uh, intro to creative writing and magazine production. And right. I think now it's just magazine production. Yeah, it's, um, and it's a very interesting class um, in that students only take it, there are a lot of classes here at Leslie in the undergrad program that students can take, uh, creative writing classes that they can take more than once uh, because they're seminar or they're workshop based. Um, not a lot of people come back and take creative writing and magazine production again Um and I remember that being a bit of a, um, not struggle, not change for me, uh, but coming up doing my own literary magazine when I was an undergrad, um, it was a club. And there was a sense of continuity because I came in as a freshman, I learned from the seniors, the seniors graduated and then you know moved up step by step. And as we were moving up, we were educating those behind us with... Les, the way le, that Leslie has it, I, I think there are a lot of benefits to it as well, but it's it's interesting to try and start afresh with a whole uh, group of students every year. And yet, one of the benefits to that is that you get fresh ideas, and uh, and that ends up being exciting. Yeah, I wish there was a way to, to meld it together, but still the idea of a course is important. Mm-hmm. And There's a lot to yeah, learn. Yeah, there's a lot to learn, and yeah. it would be nice, though, to have it continued. Yeah. Maybe the idea would be to have an online version put out right. again by students, like it comes out twice a year, but that would take yeah. a lot of choreography. So you mentioned an online version. One of the things I was curious to talk to you about was um, – especially over the the 20 years or so that you put this magazine out into the world, what did you see in terms of the changes and the way that certainly there wasn't even an option for an online version when you started? How how did the literary magazine evolve over the course of that 20 years? Not just ours, but in general. Uh, Okay. So I'm picturing in my mind what they looked like. So if anybody's like interested, you can go to the library. They've been archived. I think we're only missing a, a couple of years, but yeah, and if you can't get to the library, uh, they're online. They are online. They're online. So the scans of the original ones, you don't get quite the same feel or the right. smell of the mimeograph, but um, you do get to to see them. So they started out. You know, the mimeograph was what the um, eight and a half by eleven mm-hmm. sheet, and so I believe for the first few years it was that size. Yeah. And every year I had to go to another printer to see who would give me the best deal, mm. and what would they. Uh, you know, what would it cost for a two-color cover or three-color cover? So I learned a lot about that stuff. 
And then um, I had a wonderful student one year, Amanda McNuge, and she went to a printer in Medford Square because she was a commuter. Yeah. And uh, I went to see him, and he talked me into doing a smaller Mm, size smaller yeah not eight and a half by not, 11 yeah and it was perfect because the smaller size you could put in a backpack you mm-hmm. could put in a purse so yeah. if you were on the t or on a bus you could read it and i think it stayed that size there was a couple of years that it was a weird size it was more like a square mm-hmm. and then now it's it's been the same size since maybe 1994 93 yeah. the one it is today yeah um evolution of magazines I mean, I do a magazine now with Michael McGinnis and, you know, mm-hmm. Philip Bornstein. So it was friends and we started Nixus Mate, which is the little island in the Boston Harbor where they hung the pirates. Oh, so now it just I think has you told me that, but that's interesting. It has a buoy. So we've been around since 2016 now and we're doing really well and we do beautiful books. Mm-hmm. So the magazine's, you know, online, digital, right. and it comes out four times a year. And then we've done an anthology once a year. And then I think we've put out 45 books. Yeah. And the books are print. And Michael's a great designer. Like his background is he's a cabinet maker. So, I mean, he's all design. Yeah. So he does the book design. Um, I think books are coming back. You know, I think mm. like the print journal, people want them. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, um, and I want, I'm curious whether you think it's a nostalgia thing. I don't think it is, but you look at, um, I was in Newbury comics the other day and uh, they, for people who are not local to Boston, Newbury comics, uh, doesn't even primarily sell comic books. They primarily sell music. Um, they do have comic books over in the corner. The corner always changes, which for me as a comic book lover is always frustrating. But I went in there and certainly they still have the CDs, but the front of the store is all vinyl records. And um, not just old vinyl records, but you know, brand new editions of, of the latest stuff. And so I think there is a sort of... Um, desire for physical uh things especially if it's the physical thing you like want to hang on to because i think people are also really cognizant of not cluttering up their house with too many physical things so i find myself sometimes i'll read an ebook but if i want to have that thing i want to go get the, the the physical copy so i can pluck it off the shelf um do you think it's a nostalgia thing or do you think it, you think it'll it's it's sort of back and and here to stay I don't know if it's nostalgia. I mean, I understand the record piece, the LPs. That mm. might be nostalgia yeah. for people who've never had an LP, but right. they have no idea how much trouble that's going to be when you <laughs> collect 300 of them Yes, and what to do with them then. <laughs> Books are different. I, I, mm. I think like a, an, a journal that you can flip through, that yeah. you can actually you know, open up on the subway again or on the bus, but then you could scroll through it. I mean, yeah. I see my students, they read a whole novel on a phone. Yeah. Which I find bizarre. But, I mean, you can't write in that. Right. So that might be part of it. Like if you have a print journal, you can like circle things and write notes. Or if it's if it's your work, you can like say to somebody, look, it's my it's my hard copy book. Yeah. Which is different than having a a digital. I think one of the beauties of the of the print version of a book and especially of a literary magazine is the the serendipity of, of flipping from one page to the next. And when I uh, teach students about putting them together, one of the things that we talk about is sequencing, because I think I'm still thinking of somebody picking up a physical book, not being able to scroll through their, their device to get to the next page they want to get to, but they're going to actually have to flip. They might finish the essay they're 
um, they're reading, find an amazing piece of art and then a poem on the, on the um, facing page and then be there for another 10 minutes. Something that struck me, you were talking um, about when you first came to Boston, the zine culture. Um, and of course, uh, maybe you can explain for folks who, who might not know what a zine is, but um, the, it feels to me, you know, there was sort of zine culture, which is photocopied or mimeographed. Um, then everything got maybe very professional. And I wonder whether that squeezed out the people who were doing zines. But then the web came along and the web sort of democratizes that ability. You, anybody could go and put out a literary magazine if they want to, if they can afford a sort of a website uh, hosting plan. Um, and now we're back to, I, I just, I wonder if you see smaller, I mean, Nix's mate, you said started how long ago? Uh, 2016. The three yeah. of us just hadn't seen each other in a long time. Yeah. And we've always been in touch and we met for lunch and we all said, we want to do a magazine. Yeah. So we were like, okay, how do we do it? And Philip's the tech guru right. and, and Michael's really the designer. So I'm actually the person who puts everything in order. And it's really different to put in order an online journal yeah. because he's always like, well, you could print the pages out, but right. I'm like, no, I don't want to print them. So I've gotten really good at going back and forth and reading, yeah. or I take notes as we're reading subs thinking, mm -hmm. oh, these all go together. Yeah. And then, you know, when someone says to me, wow, great order. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> but you know, I enjoy doing that. Like yeah. I like, I help a lot of people with their books yeah. about the order of the poems. But then like for my new book, Gloria Mindock at Chervena Barva, you know, I put out like 120 pages and I said, this is what I see. Yeah. And then she said, all right, give me an hour. And she came up with a different order and mm. it was great. Yeah. Well, and I think that kind of collaboration can be great. I, I, I can't help but thinking about um, going back to the vinyl records. Um, certainly I never owned my own record player, but my dad was a DJ. And so I was around vinyl records a whole bunch. One of the beauties of, of the vinyl record is that you, you can skip, but you actually have to get up, pick up the needle and, and move to another song. So you are experiencing things in a sequence. And I wonder whether or not sequencing is that I feel like when I teach students about putting a literary magazine together, sequencing is something I have to really sort of hammer home. They maybe haven't thought about that as much. I mean, do you think that the art of sequencing could fade away as we maybe don't have those things where you're just going to have to sit and, and live with a piece? I don't know. Because look at any online journal, it's sequenced. Mm. So yeah. I imagine the editors are thinking, oh, this would go well with this. Yeah. I mean, I like sequences. So I yeah. when I read an online journal, I'm like, okay, what are they doing here? Like, right. are they going theme? Are they going you yeah. know, image? Are they going alphabetically just to make it easy? Because yeah. I think we did that with our um, anthology. I was like, just go alphabetical. Just yeah. do it that way. That, and that's uh, the, the Best American series. Uh, at least the Best American short fiction series does that. Everything is alphabetical by the author's last name. And I sometimes that can lead to an interesting sequence of things. But other times I would find myself thinking, oh, this one would have been great as a last story. But person happened to be born with the last name Adams. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the performance part. Uh, you know, thinking about albums, uh, thinking about music and thinking about sequencing of, of concerts and things like that, which I certainly have a lot of thoughts about. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, the, 
the live performance part of, of Common Thought because uh, that was a big, and, and continues to be maybe not as big anymore, a big part of the, the release of every issue. The first time we did it, the reading was in the, what is now the student center, but it was in the back on the first floor, not the second floor. And I think it had a sunken, like, you know, there was like another level, if I remember correctly. And there was so many submissions. It was amazing. Like we just put the word out and the word was like on flyers that were all over school. Yeah. I mean, this is before email. Right. I mean, this is 1980. It had to be 88. I came in 87. Yeah. So I'm imagining it was like the spring of 88 Yeah. at the earliest. And there must have been 60 submissions from graduate students, from undergrads. And I remember looking through it when I gave it to Philip at the library. I was very moved. And I remember yeah. the reading, how many people came and they brought their spouses and their kids yeah. And it was this potluck, you know, like dessert. Everybody brought something. And those times don't exist anymore. It is harder it's to get. It's hard. Yeah. I, I think I know. This is really odd because I'm a theater person, right? So yeah. I never thought of the poetry readings as a performance. I thought of it as mm. a reading. Yeah. And, I mean, some people are really good readers. And we know yeah. that there are some very famous poets who are terrible readers oh, of their work. Yeah. There's this monotone nonsense in reading poetry, even fiction. So some people were just naturally present and they could breathe at the right spot Mm. and um, they were louder. I mean, I think we had a microphone set up, but some people were, you know, painfully shy. Yeah. And what are you going to do? I mean, this is a student's work. They got up there to read it, be they a grad student, an undergrad student. Yeah. And the fact that they were up there reading it and it was published was such a, a big thing for them. Right. That, you know, I didn't do any, like, acting coaching with any oh, of yeah. them. I, yeah. it, that's, it's difficult. You know, I go to readings and I'm like, wow, great work, mm. bad reading. <laughs> but, you know, that's, I'm not going to go to the, re- the poet and say that. Yeah, no, it, it, can definitely, uh, it can definitely happen. So we've kind of danced around common thought as a, as a thing. We've, we've talked about the evolution of literary magazines and, and whatnot. So I was thinking maybe we could talk about the, the scope of the magazine, you know, Who's contributing to it? Uh, who has traditionally? Who we who we hope might in the in the future? The, the scope, just in general, of of where it's been and where it might go in the future. For the past thirty or thirty one years, wherever we're counting from, mm. the contributors came out of two places. Yeah. One place was the class, so every student who was in the class had to contribute something to the right. magazine. And then the other contributors could be anybody in the Leslie community. So it could have been a professor, an administrator, uh, somebody in physical plants, somebody in uh, food service. Mm. So it just it was Leslie community. Right. And we used to get, as I said, 50, 60 yeah. submissions. Sometimes there would be 70 submissions because people would send, you know, the way in a literary magazine you send five poems, right. one story. So the people who sent, sent a lot. And then it got smaller and smaller mm. and less people contribute, even though it's easier now to contribute. Yeah. That's, to me, that's the conundrum more than, you know, vinyl records. Like, right. well, why is it when you can just email yeah. that you're not doing it? So we're, we did a, um, 
a program review of the creative mm-hmm. writing major, one of the um, recommendations that the committee made, and it was all of us teaching creative writing, was that we open it up like other colleges have, mm-hmm. and then you get contributors from yeah. all over the world, and it's, you know, because they're sending you online, yeah. and then maybe have guest editors along with you who's teaching the class, you yeah. get a famous poet, you give a prize. So there's a lot of stuff in the works that yeah. is not yet solidified. Yeah, but it's 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 all exciting, and some of it is uh, I you know requires a lot of work, right? Figuring out who those guests uh, guest editors might be and things like that. Some of it requires very little um, because there are uh, services like uh, Submittable, which is what a lot of literary magazines use um, to ingest submissions from uh from the wider public and because we at common thought have have used that it was very easy actually and i don't know if it was because we were going to do this interview today that i had it on the brain but i took about 10 minutes earlier today um updated the uh rough deadlines and things like that and and opened up the submittable portal to the world and so now uh it it's out there on the internet and what what I think the real key ends up being, and I think this is the maybe the answer to why don't people submit more when, when you can either just email or, in this case, submit through a website, is there's all sorts of places to do it. Um, you know, one of the things about zine culture way back in the, you know, how did you find out about a zine? You found out about a zine from somebody else who, who knew the zine or possibly at a, a you know, I mean, maybe you can speak to this. I remember seeing them at, at libraries or different uh, magazine shops, things like that. Nowadays, you can find out about um, or not find out about somebody's literary magazine by searching the web. Um, and so it makes it a little, it's great that everybody can do it. It's hard to, to find. Um, I think it's hard to find because people don't do the other homework piece of sending mm. work out. Like you need yeah. to see what the magazine's publishing. Right. And then your chances of, you know, being read seriously, you yeah. know, as somebody who reads a lot of manuscripts through Submittable for Nexus Mate, um, then, you know, you see if it's, if you're fit, you know, if you're yeah. a good fit for that publication. And there are so many, it's overwhelming. Yeah. And I tell my students also to go to the Harvard bookstore if they want to look at hard copy or yeah. to the Trident Mm-hmm. And take a look at who's publishing still only. Like Paris Review. Yeah. You know, that's going to be a hard copy. And I think they want hard copy subs. That's, that's always interesting. That's a tough one, you know. Yeah. Especially for our, uh, you know, students who maybe don't have access to a printer, um, who have to, you know, come to campus and, and use a printer to print things out. And they've they've maybe got a limited budget. And they've got to decide, am I going to print my paper for my professor or print this thing that I'm going to send to the Paris Review? You would hope. They, they wouldn't have to make that, that choice, but um, some of them probably do. Um, yeah, no, I think it's, it's if literary magazines are a thing someone listening to this is interested in, the local bookstore, you know, you mentioned a few here in, in Boston and Cambridge, but uh, I'm sure they're, uh, they're well-stocked, not at every local bookstore, but um, that's, that's been one of the... Um, pleasures of, of my last couple of years as a, as a reader and writer is, is seeing more local bookstores pop up. And if they don't have literary magazines there at your local one, you probably go and ask them. Um, because uh, I've taken to, rather than, uh, rather than going to Amazon for my new books, going to my local bookstore and ordering them. And um, so you say, hey, I'd like to get 
uh, literary magazines, you've got a little space over here. They'd probably do it. Um, yeah, probably. There, I mean, there's uh, records are coming back. So are local bookstores. There was yeah. something on NPR the other day about David and Goliath, and mm. that you know David was taking on Amazon. So the yeah. small bookstores. I hope they make their way back. Yeah. No, I I think and um, uh, one of my local it's 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 funny i commute from about 40 minutes outside the city when i get here it's an embarrassment of riches but back home um it's an embarrassment of riches about 20 minutes away in in various directions but um the uh the silver unicorn in west acton massachusetts is one that um it's it's kind of not on the main street this i think one of the ways in which local bookstores are are making a comeback they're occupying these weird places i think I don't know if it used to be a dry cleaner or like a pizza place or something, you know, so it's just an old, uh, old building that they've repurposed. Um, you mentioned uh, a couple of literary magazines, but, um, which ones are, I, I, maybe the Paris Review, which ones are you reading, uh, today yourself with any, I mean, maybe not every month or every whatever, but with any kind of regularity. I read a lot of them online because mm. I get a lot of, um, what would we call them, like tags saying, you know, mm. this magazine just came out oh, yeah. and that one just came out. Uh, if, I, if, you know, if I go to the bookstore, I will pick up the Paris Review just because mm. I want to see what they're publishing. Yeah. Uh, poetry because you want to see who's the top, you know, because right. all of us know if we get in there, we've made it, quote unquote. <laughs> but they have, a print, they have a print and a um, digital. Yeah. So you can read it online. You know, I read a lot of fiction, and I have to say when I'm teaching, I'm reading a lot of novels and plays and poems and stories with my students, and then reading so many submissions for Nixus Mate. So sometimes I'm not, like, at the bookstore saying, okay, what's coming out? Yeah. Well, I, it's 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 uh, partially a selfish question because I don't get a ton of time to look at them myself, so I'm always looking for good recommendations. But yeah, I think the Paris Review is one that I'll that I'll pick up uh, near there, and and I I just think it's fun to go and and see what's out because um, there are the sort of mainstays, but uh, you'll find new things uh, on the on the newsstand as well. So as we get a little bit closer to the end here, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about why you think it's important that campuses have literary magazines of their own what, what what are the benefits you know what role do they play in the education and development of, of novice writers uh maybe back when you first started and and now i think they play such a an important you know pivotal role for novice writers but you know less common thought wasn't just like a literary magazine it was mm-hmm. a leslie university magazine of the arts right so before aib you know, now L.A. plus D. Right, which came, so that's the Art Institute <laughs> of Boston, Boston, which is now Leslie... Art and Design. Art and Design, yeah. So they came here in 1998. They mm-hmm. merged, you know, with Leslie. Right. So before that, they had uh, this... Sean McNiffin started art therapy, so we did have artists. Right. So artists were allowed to submit work also that mm-hmm. would then be photographed right. and put in the magazine. And it wasn't just a reading at one point. There was an art show that was hung. Yeah. Of the people whose work was in the magazine. But at that time, you know, it served as this platform Mm -hmm. for um, student artists, writers, mostly students, 
to have a place to showcase their work. Yeah. And it still, it was juried work. You know, mm-hmm. oh, the other thing I need to say is I would be the one that would take all the names off the submissions. <laughs> yeah. So it was read the way a literary magazine should be, or, yeah. a, you know, a peer-reviewed journal right. should be read. And nobody knew who the authors were. Yeah. So, you know, it was a big deal to get your letter saying you were uh, going to be, you were accept- your work was accepted yeah. to be published in Common Thought. So I think literary journals, or art journals, and colleges, universities serve that like that stepping stone for f- maybe a first publication yeah. that seems um, adult, mm-hmm. professional, yeah. and that you you have that experience, and then if there's a reading, you get to read. Yeah, and in a school, maybe then you'll want to take the class. Yeah, and see what it's like to be on the other end. Yeah, and for it. the for the young younger or novice writer who is maybe, you know, very afraid of, of putting themselves out there. It can be, as you said, it's still juried, you know, it's still reviewed anonymously. So it's all about the quality of the work, but if they're afraid maybe of, you know, going out there and and submitting it professionally to, to one of the big boy journals, um, this is a great place to, to kind of, uh, get that first, taste of what it might feel like. And, and not to say that we're um, any less discerning in our tastes than, than those other things, but um, I often find as an editor of, a, of the literary magazine wanting to take a chance on a piece. It may not be perfect, but um, it's, uh, it fits in um, and it's going to give that person the feeling that I remember I had as an undergrad submitting something um, coming out of high school where I had been too shy to submit anything to my high school's literary journal. Um, I guess I should be lucky that my high school even had a literary journal. <laughs> um, but I was too shy to do it. And I came in as a, as a freshman. I submitted something anonymously. They accepted it. And all of a sudden, I, I felt like, oh, maybe I can actually do this. Um, yeah. That happened to me also. We had a magazine in my high school. And recently I found it. So that was interesting. <laughs> and then we had one in college and I was a freshman with these, you know, uh, seniors that yeah. were, some of them were a lot older than me, people who, you know, came back to college. Right. This was at Brooklyn College in Brooklyn, New York. They were great. I learned a lot from that yeah. group and they did become my friends, these yeah. older people. It was good. Yeah. So thanks, Annie, for uh, talking to us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Why We Write. To access the full archive of Common Thought Magazine, check out the link in our show notes. This is our last podcast of the season. We will spend the next few months speaking with more authors and be back with more bookish content in a few months. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you will stay safe and healthy during these unusual and difficult times.